Welcome to Flight Safety Detectives. Here, hosts John Golia and Greg Fife, two of the world's most respected aviation experts, talk about all things aviation safety. This podcast is brought to you by PAMA, the Professional Aviation Maintenance Association, and Avemco Insurance, a world-class provider of aviation insurance. Get a customized quote at avemco.com or give them a call at 888-241-7891. Now it's time to buckle up because it's wheels up on the latest episode of Flight Safety Detectives. Well, John, well, Todd, uh, we uh, had part one of our interview with uh, with our friend Hoot Gibson. And of course, he is back uh, for this particular show, which you can tell by the way we're dressed. It's just a continuation. We split the show in half, if you will, so that we could give Hoot more time to give us the backstories behind the stories of uh, some of the missions that he flew, some of the events that he experienced while he was flying uh, with NASA. And, and just talking about the lessons learned, not only from his time as an astronaut and, of course, as a naval aviator, but as a general aviation pilot. He is an avid general aviation pilot. He does race high-performance aircraft, and there is always something to be learned. And, um, and as he said in uh, the last show, one of the things that you can't have enough of is training. So we appreciate Hoot, you being back with us to give us the, uh, the backstories. And, um, and again, I know that our audience will find them fascinating and definitely there will be some lessons learned that they can take away from this discussion. So we're happy that you're back. And I know that uh, I'm looking forward to seeing the pictures and the stories as well. Well, thank you, Greg and, and John and Todd. It's great, it's great to be back with you again. And uh, uh, yeah, with that, uh, I'll go ahead and launch into uh, the slides. And I, I just want to remind screen. our I, I just want to remind our viewers and our listeners that uh, this show, like all of our other shows, is sponsored by Avemco Insurance and PAMA, the Professional Aviation Maintenance Association. Um, John is normally our, our spokesperson advertiser for uh, for Avemco, and uh, you can get them at Avemco.com. If you listen to our show and you mention that you listen to our show, uh, you will get a five percent discount. So if you are in need of any kind of insurance related to general aviation activities, flight instruction, things like that, definitely uh, get in touch with, uh, with our friends at Avemco Insurance. So with that being said, since, yeah, it was probably, you know, hard to get just general run-of-the-mill insurance on this boot when uh, you're trying to insure a shuttle. <laughs> Oh golly, yeah. And I'm not, they're 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 kind of valuable machines as well. Uh, probably worth about a billion dollars each, or a billion and a half dollars each. And so, uh, yeah, that might be that might be hard. Uh, Avemco yeah. can do amazing things. I'm not sure they could figure out how we could how we can necessarily insure a shuttle. But uh, absolutely. Well, let's see. We should have the picture of Atlantis over the Black Sea up on our screen now. And this was a photo that we took on my last mission. And this is the historical, traditional, I should say, boundary between Europe and Asia with Europe being on the right side of the picture and Asia on the left side. And the landmass that we see to the left side is Turkey. So that describes where we are. Europe is to the, to the right side of the pictures. So I mentioned that my, my dad was the one that 
taught me how to fly. And so I learned in general aviation aircraft and uh, from, from day one. And mom and dad were both pilots. So I grew up in a flying family. I was really fortunate to get exposed to aviation basically all my life. So out of college, I did graduate in aeronautical engineering and I got my first choice. And that was F-4 Phantoms out of San Diego, California. Mm -hmm. What a thrill flying from an aircraft carrier is because you go from this position to this position in about four seconds and you're going 175 miles an hour when you get to here. Mm -hmm. So lots of training. Lots of training went into uh, getting, getting to fly those and getting to operate those. And then I got, to, I got to fly in the very first Tomcat squadron, the first operational Tomcat squadron. So I'm always fond of saying, Tom Cruise, eat your heart out. I actually got to fly these. And this was actually my Tomcat uh, on the front cockpit. It has Lieutenant Bob Gibson. Now, I was really thrilled with the F-4 Phantom because at the time it had been the world's best all around fighter. And then the Tomcat came along and everything the Phantom could do, the Tomcat could do better. It out-accelerated it, out-climbed it, out-turned it by a mile. It had a much more sophisticated radar and navigation and weapon system. And so just a really big advancement. The thing that really got me to NASA, though, was test pilot school. I had the experience of the F-4 Phantom in the fleet and the F-14 Tomcat in the fleet, but we never picked a pilot to be a space shuttle pilot unless they were graduates of one of the test pilot schools. Mm -hmm. And so that's what really got me to be eligible, really, to get selected to be a NASA astronaut. And so that was a, a real, real great thing to have done. I have never worked that hard in my entire life as that one year in test pilot school. Um, yeah, I know. Every time I'm with you, it's obvious that you don't work very hard. So. <laughs> <laughs> hey, what I should have said was I've never been forced to work that there hard. There you go. That's better. <laughs> uh, but that's what led me into, this is my first launch aboard Challenger, February the 3rd, 1984. And this was the 10th time that we had sent a space shuttle uh, to space. And, you know, it always looks so slow and majestic mm -hmm. as it lifted off. It's not slow and majestic. By the time our tail got to the top of that tower, we were over 100 miles an hour. So it was not a slow and majestic liftoff, although it looked like it. Uh, this is where we were on my second launch. This is at the end of two minutes, and we can tell that because the smoke cloud, smoke trail, is dissipated, and that means the booster rockets have burned out. Hmm. So in two minutes, where did we arrive at? We were 30 miles up, 30 miles out over the Atlantic Ocean, and already going 3,000 miles an hour. That's awesome. So what a ride. It was like a catapult shot on your way to space. That's awesome. Now, on my first mission, we did lots of exciting things. This was probably the most exciting thing. And people ask me all the time, who did you ever get to do a spacewalk? And the answer is no. As a pilot astronaut, I am far too valuable to risk me outside. <laughs> but we've got lots, lots of mission specialists. So, you know, we, we can send them out there and it'll be OK. Well, this was this was quite the event. And this was the world's first untethered spacewalk. 
Yeah. And this is Bruce McCandless. We can't see his face because he has his gold visor down, but he has the red stripes on his legs. And so that tells us this is Bruce McCandless. Our other spacewalker was Bob Stewart, and he didn't have any stripes. So that's how we could tell them apart oh. when they were outside. And they're there. Now, in this picture, Bruce McCandless is flying the man maneuvering unit. We had to have, you know, the MMU. We've got to have an acronym for everything. And, but it's a rocket pack uh, that uses compressed nitrogen because yeah. it doesn't take a whole lot of thrust when you're weightless and in a no friction environment, doesn't take more than two pounds of thrust to, uh, to maneuver and to control your attitude. And he used it to fly pretty far away. Okay, one of the things that we aviators always need to preserve for ourselves is a backup plan, a yeah. way out. Do I always have a way out? And people ask me all the time, well, what what if he had run out of fuel while he was out there or had an electrical failure in the man maneuvering unit? The answer was we could fly Challenger over to him to pick him up. And the joke was, okay, you're gonna have to offer us a lot of money, but <laughs> no, nothing, nothing like that happened. It was, a, it was a completely successful first test of the man maneuvering unit. And in this picture, Bruce McCandless is a human satellite. He's traveling at five miles per second over the earth and i have to say i was really glad that i got to be a pilot astronaut because i got to be a mission commander four times but when i looked out the window and saw this i was jealous i was really jealous that i didn't get to do this because the view he must have had under his boots at the earth 185 miles under his feet just must have been spectacular I'd like well, you to go back one picture of the first McCandless picture for a second. Sure. I understand that you are the person who actually took this picture. Yes. Yes, sir. At um, the time, did you think when you snapped the shutter that this would be one of the iconic pictures for the entire shuttle program, from the entire history of NASA for that matter? I have seen this everywhere for the last several decades. Well, um, no, sir, I didn't have that thought. Although I have to tell you, when I, when I first looked through the viewfinder, and this was a Hasselblad camera, 70 millimeter film, Hasselblad, everything is manual on it. The focus is manual, the f-stop is manual, the shutter speed is manual, everything on it is manual. And in fact, the camera itself didn't have a light meter, so I had a, a light meter in my hand that I would take a click on Bruce and see what the light meter said, and then manually set the camera and shoot it. But when I first looked through the viewfinder, I didn't even take the picture. I just, I just put the camera down for a second, and I said to myself, holy smokes, what an image this is. If I don't mess this photo up, I'm going to get the cover of Aviation Week magazine. Hmm. And I actually got three covers um, of Aviation Week. And so what it did was it made me be very deliberate and very cautious, which uh, Greg will point out is unusual for me. Yes, absolutely. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, but it made me be extremely conscientious about it because I'm saying the whole time, I just can't mess up this photo. So yes, and, and like you mentioned, Todd, that, that picture gets used everywhere and it never says photo by Hooter. Uh, it, it always says photo by NASA 
is and what it it's says. A, this is a message for everyone out there. Every photo, every film, every document from NASA is not only transparent to the public, it's in the public domain. Except for the NASA logo itself, you can use almost any NASA image yeah. anywhere you please. So this picture will continue to be showing up everywhere for the next several decades. That picture Good. is just inspirational, just looking at it. I mean, oh, God, yes, yes, it is. And of course, this was another cover uh, of Aviation Week magazine. And uh, I mentioned that we could fly over to pick him up because this is a photo that he shot of us while he was out there. And you can see on the nose and then back by the tail, we have thrusters pointing all different directions uh, on the space shuttle. So we could maneuver in orbit to fly over to pick him up. Uh, which which didn't happen. We didn't we didn't need to do that. Well, we we came back at the end of eight days, and this was the first time that the weather cooperated down at Cape Canaveral. So we made the very first landing at Cape Canaveral. And again, this was this was now February the 11th of 1984. Uh, the tenth shuttle launch was the first time that the weather cooperated enough uh, to let us come back and land there. Hey, who? Um... On re-entry, as you're coming down, um, and I saw the chase plane in that photo, um, do, do they send that aircraft up to do basically, for lack of a better term, battle damage assessment of the shuttle on your way in? Um, you know, I know that in the military, and I, I worked an accident where they were training pilots to, uh, to do uh, recon on drones that would come back looking for battle damage and that kind of stuff. Do these guys evaluate the status of the aircraft um, or are they just chasing you down for telemetry and things like that? On the first four shuttle launches, we had a safety chase that was going to join up and do just that. And I was, uh, I was chase four for the first shuttle launch. And then I was chase one for STS-2, the second shuttle launch. So I was the T-38 that joined up and slid up right under the space shuttle and checked out the tiles, looked everything over, uh, and then got out on the right wing and gave them an airspeed check because our air data probes are retracted during reentry or they'd melt. Mm -hmm. And so we don't, we don't deploy those until, we'll, until we've slowed all the way down to Mach 5. So once we're really slow, Mach 5, that's yeah, when really we deploy slow. those probes. And uh, so I'd give them an airspeed altitude cross-check. Uh, now, on this particular landing, we had not done a chase since STS-4, mm. uh, the, fourth, the fourth launch of the shuttle. But for the first landing at Cape Canaveral, they wanted live television. So Charlie Justice was our, was our chase pilot, and Pete Stanley was the uh, photographer in the back seat and he was operating a television camera. So we were beaming, he was beaming live TV down to the ground. Oh, good. Uh, so he joined up about a thousand feet off the left wing and then held that position all the way down. So he wasn't purely a safety chase on this particular, on this particular mission. Got it. Well, and let's see, I guess this is a photo of my fourth launch and I, I frequently show this one to talk about what it was like living on board. And on this particular mission, we were a science mission. We had the Space Lab Laboratory uh, on, back in the cargo bay. And so we were working around the clock 
we had, I had divided my crew up into the red crew and the blue crew. And so while the red crew was working, the blue crew would be sleeping and vice versa. And so every 12 hours we would have a shift change and that's what we're doing in this picture is we're handing off from red to blue or the other way around. And you notice down on the floor, the high tech way that we hold ourselves in one spot, uh, these little foot loops that are down on the floor. Now you notice in this picture, there's no, there's no chairs. We don't need chairs in orbit because you don't need to sit down and rest because you haven't been standing. And so we have no use for chairs. And everything, I don't know if you can, if you can make it out in this picture, there's Velcro everywhere. If you look on the ceiling, I'll refer to it as the ceiling, the top, uh, the little white squares, those are all Velcro squares. Mm. So everything has Velcro on it. And that's because you can't just set something down and expect it to stay there in weightlessness. So every, everything has to be Velcroed. And uh, it's really convenient to work in weightlessness because you'll notice I'm writing in my notebook and when I fill up a whole page, uh, it's really handy. I can just let my pen float in midair <laughs> and reach down and flip the page and continue writing on the next page. Nice. So weightlessness, once, once you learn to work with it and not against it, uh, really works very well. Apparently you left that note-taking skill in space. I've never seen <laughs> <laughs> well you know it was I, I tell a funny story you got in the habit of doing that parking your pen in the air and then flipping the page and the story is one of the astronauts had come back from a mission and there was always a big crowd of people waiting for us in Houston and one of the astronauts was signing an autograph book for a lady and she said, oh, would you sign the next page too? And so he parked his pen in midair and flipped the page. And of course his pen wasn't there. <laughs> and people see things like that and they think these poor guys, it must've been bombardment by radiation in space or lack of oxygen <laughs> that has happened to them. But anyway, you get in the habit of doing that. So once, yeah. once you learn to work in weightlessness, it's really great. Well, that was my fourth mission, and we stayed up for eight days on that one, and then landed back at Cape Canaveral again. Um, for my final mission, we trained over here. Uh, we, we, my crew and I, were picked to do the very first docking that a space shuttle ever did, and it was to be with the, and it was with, the Russian space station Mir. Wow. One of the big challenges for me was that we had to learn to speak Russian. This was back in 1994, 1995. And at that time, the Russians that we were working with, the cosmonauts, couldn't speak English. And they didn't have the money to buy English textbooks or hire English teachers. So we had to make the effort to learn to speak Russian. And as an engineer, I'm pretty good with math and physics and science, but I am not very good with languages. And so that was a challenge. That was a bit of a challenge. And so usually if I have to speak Russian to somebody, I will start off by telling them, uh, just so they won't have their expectations too high. And what I just said was, I speak Russian very badly and understand nothing. 
but we had to at least be somewhat conversant. And I am far from fluent, but I can still carry on a very poor conversation in Russian. Mm. Well, and this was our view of space station Mir as we were approaching. Mir is spelled M-I-R and it has two meanings in Russian. It means world and it also means peace mm. as in peace on earth. And where I, where I docked was the upper right corner in this picture, a module called Kristall that the Russians had built a docking module for their space shuttle to go to, but it never went there. They only flew their space shuttle one time completely unmanned in October of 1998, 1988, sorry, and it never flew again. Hmm. It never flew with people in it. And the Soviet Union crumbled apart from within and they couldn't afford to operate space shuttles. And so it never went there. So we bought the part that we needed to dock with Mir. And so this is a picture obviously taken from Mir as I was on my way up and I'm flying Atlantis at this point by hand because rendezvous and docking in our program, um, in the shuttle program was always flown manually by the commander. And what I had to do was fly our docking ring, which is sitting right up here in the front part of the cargo bay. It's about a four foot diameter ring and it was not a self-centering mechanism. So I had to line up the centers of the two docking rings within plus or minus three inches. Wow. So it's interesting. We're both going 17,500 miles an hour, uh, 235 miles above the earth, but I had three inches to play with. <laughs> and so, however, we had done training. And we had, we had, I had made nearly a hundred dockings in the simulator. So of course it all came off flawlessly and it wasn't just me. I had a very sharp crew and it, nobody flies a space shuttle by themselves. And I certainly did not. I had a really sharp crew that was there taking part in it eagerly. And the protocol was when we got there that the two mission commanders will shake hands at the hatch. So in this picture, I'm shaking hands with Russian Air Force Colonel Vladimir Dzhurov, who had been a Russian MiG pilot, training to shoot me down all those years that I was training to shoot him down. And the President of the United States announced that day that this handshake marks the end of the Cold War. So now all of our all of our watchers to know that I ended the Cold War. <laughs> Man, that's another honor I'm going to have to read about. <laughs> it makes a funny story. But yeah. anyway, we were docked to Mir, and this was, this was us docked to the Mir space station for five days. And then at the end of that time, it was time for us to leave. And that was a busy five days. Uh, we, had, we had more than 140 items that we had to transfer either from the shuttle to the Mir or from the mirror back to the shuttle. So we were busy. Who was uh, taking this time. picture? Who? Well, interesting. Um, something I didn't mention when I showed the first picture of mirror down in the lower left-hand corner, you'll see the Soyuz capsule, the black vehicle down there is a, is a small Apollo capsule essentially is what it is. And you'll notice it's there in this photo 
In this photo, it isn't there. Yeah. It's gone from the upper right portion. Anatoly Soloviev and Nikolai Budarin, who I dropped off there at the Mir space station to take it over, were staying for five months and they undocked 15 minutes before I undocked and moved out to the side 200 feet so they could take uh, the two pictures that I'm gonna show us. This is, this is the first picture that they took. And then this is us just as we were leaving. And, and about now, things started to fall apart. Malfunctions happened. Hmm. The computer on the Mir space station went dead. Wow. So all of a sudden, uh, Mission Control Moscow starts yelling at Anatoly in the Soyuz, Rastakovka Priamo Sichas, redock now, uh, because they had lost their computer. And if they, we, and we were headed for sunset pretty quickly, and sunset happens real quickly. It happens 16 times as fast up in orbit because we're circling the Earth 16 times a day. And if they had not been able to redock immediately, they would have had to hold for 45 minutes because there's no lights on the Soyuz and there's no lights on the docking port. And they didn't have 45 minutes of holding fuel. Wow. So they would have had to do an emergency deorbit and the space station would have been lost because it didn't have any attitude control and who knows what was gonna happen to it. And there was and, nothing that you could do in the shuttle to help that situation? That's correct. Yeah, we didn't have any kind of telemetry or any kind of control that we could have helped with. So prior to flight, when the Russians came up with this idea that they wanted to do this, I said to my crew, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard of. Instead of just having two vehicles that need to not collide up there in orbit, we're going to let them undock the Soyuz and now we've got three vehicles that not, need to not run together. Mm -hmm. I said, NASA's never going to approve that. Well, obviously, NASA approved it. And uh, guess what? They never did that again. Yeah. This was the only time that that ever happened. Uh, because as I mentioned, that's a dumb idea. <laughs> and so we got away with it. But, you know, another another message, you know, for for, for all of us in aviation is is don't plan on getting away with it. Hey, who, um, how do you transition from the cockpit area of the shuttle to get to the uh, connector between the shuttle and the space station? We, great question, John. We have a tunnel. Uh, we have a tunnel. In fact, let me go back to, uh, to this picture. Um, you can see the docking port once again up here. Okay, we had the Space Lab Laboratory once again, because we did a, a, a lot of testing of the three cosmonauts that we picked up from Mir, medical testing to see what kind of condition they're in after, in their case, it was four months of being weightless. Uh, but there's a tunnel that we can't really make out that goes from the cockpit to the, to the docking port, and then the tunnel continues back into the Space Lab. So that was how that was how we would move around uh, to get from the uh, from the cockpit of the shuttle. And then in this picture, you can see we'd be in the tunnel, heading 
heading from the cockpit back to here, and then we just make the turn and go up into the Mir space station. So that, that was how we could get around everywhere. And this was a picture of what it looked like as we were leaving, and you can see Soyuz has successfully redocked uh, here on this end, on this end of the uh, of the space station. So they had a little bit of a close call with the with the Mir space station, and so uh, pre-flight planning. This didn't come up until something like three weeks before launch. And so we had never done any training on any kind of malfunctions or any kind of anything that might go wrong. And maybe something like this would be something that we should have simulated, but we didn't. Now, fortunately, Anatoly Solovyev, the commander of the Soyuz and then the commander of the Mir space station, this was his first, fifth time to space. And so he was an old experienced hand and he was able to handle it just fine. Hmm. Uh, but we don't want to count on things like that. Yeah. So, oh, I don't know. Do we want to see some pictures from space? Yeah, well, I'll, I'll run us, through them. Uh, yeah, I know our audience would love to see what it looks like from space from an astronaut perspective. Well, this was a shot we took on my fourth mission, and this was Hurricane Bonnie out over the Atlantic Ocean near Bermuda. And we can see it was actually a relatively small hurricane. It sure looks big to me, but apparently mm -hmm. it was a somewhat small hurricane, but the eye stands out very clearly. And you see all these spiral bands of thunderstorms and tornadoes that wrap out from around a hurricane. <clears throat> now, uh, this, I, I've this got to ask a, you, I'm sorry, I've got to ask you one question though. Sure. Just for some of the population who doesn't believe the earth is round. Is the earth round? Oh, Valley, yes, it is, because I, <laughs> I, never, I never got to a corner. Okay, I, I good. Went around it. I went around it. How many times I went around it, I never did see a single corner. And you can look at this picture, and you can <clears> see <throat> it's an 8,000-mile diameter ball. So we don't look out and see a small ball uh, like they did from the moon. When you look at it from long ways away, you see that it is a sphere, but we can clearly see that it's a big 8,000 mile diameter sphere. So, so there's no corners. It's not flat anywhere. Uh, this was a photo that we shot on my fourth mission as well. And this is the Delta of the Nile River. And the Nile flows from south to north. So north is at the top of this photo. And one of the interesting things is if you can see where I'm pointing right here, uh, this is the city of Cairo right here at the tip of the delta. And the bright spot here in the sand, those are the pyramids. Oh, so wow. you can actually make out where those are from space if you know if you know right where to look. What do you suppose this looks like at night? Yeah. Looks pretty spectacular at night. Yeah. So more bragging, not only do we get to enjoy this spectacular view in the daylight, but we get to enjoy it at night as well. And there sure is a lot of civilization living along the Nile River because we humans need water very badly. And you move off the Nile River where there's not a whole lot of water. There's not, not many people out there. I have no clue who this is out here, but you guys sure are out there. <laughs> and let's see, just probably just a couple more photos here. Um, sunrises and sunsets, we're circling the earth every hour and a half. So the sun, goes up and down every 45 minutes. 
Hey, who, when, when you, when we think about, you know, backside of the clock flying, especially for cargo haulers and that kind of stuff. And I uh, did the DC eight that crashed in Gitmo where we attributed fatigue um, to, as a cause of the accident. Did you ever get into a circadian rhythm issue? Uh, you know, your sleep cycle all screwed up um, just because you are circling every, you know, 16 times a basically in that period of time and you're seeing these multiple sunrises and sunsets and your body clock gets all screwed up. We, we used um, on my fourth mission, the half of the crew that was gonna launch, get to space and at three and a half hours elapsed time, they were supposed to go to bed and go to sleep. And so we used bright light therapy to make their night times down on the earth before the mission to make their night times day times. Oh. And if they had to go outside in the daytime, they had to wear dark, dark glasses so that it looked like night to them. Hmm. And we used that to train that half of the crew. Uh, I was not on that half of the crew. So I, I didn't have to actually do it, but the ones that faithfully adapted that way, actually adapted to it to where they were not tired they were not sleepy, they were not fatigued, so it actually works, but you have to stick with it. And a lot of our, I know freight operations, um, you don't do that all month. You yeah. do that for five or seven days and, and you don't have the opportunity, I don't think, and I, I've never been in that situation, but you don't have the opportunity to adapt to it the way that our crews did. I worked midnight shift for many, many years and you know, when you go on your days off, because all the family ties and other things, uh, you end up reverting to a normal day-night uh, routine. And then you come back to work after your two days off. And that first night is a challenge. Oh, golly. Right? I, so if you can't go to bed, like at six o'clock the night before you're going into work, uh, which family pressure sometimes eats into that big time, uh, and you don't get maybe but an hour, an hour and a half sleep before you go to work, it makes for a very long night and very painful. But then oh, by no. the time the third day comes in the cycle, you're in the groove again. So day three, day four, day five, uh, you're sort of normal, even though you're not in the normal cycle for the rest of society. But then you hit your days off again. So you go through this constant adjustment in and out of a normal what people would call a normal cycle and it's it's tough sure it's yeah absolutely i could i could see where it is we we would see it a little bit in some of the testing prior to launch uh where where we'd be testing the vehicle at midnight and well into the early hours of the morning so yeah we'd see it some as well and it's it's tough to adapt to that well, I always show that sunset picture and say, okay, this is kind of pretty, but the prettiest thing we get to see from space is the aurora. And there are two of them. There is the aurora borealis, the northern lights, which we're most familiar with, but there's also the southern lights, the aurora australis. And it's just fascinating to watch. And we can only catch a little bit of it on a camera Whereas looking out the window, we don't have windows as big as Blue Origins, but we had pretty big windows on the shuttle. And it was just fascinating to watch the Aurora. So and and speaking of that, Hoot, 
Um, recently, we had a huge cosmic storm. Um, with regard to the safety of manned vehicles in space, when you have these large cosmic storms, were there ever any issues? Did they really pose a threat to the folks on the space stations or you know, earlier on in just space capsules? Was there really a, a deep concern for it or given the fact that you know, NASA and the construction of these capsules and space stations, um, you know, yeah, they knew they were gonna happen, but there was never really a concern about something very catastrophic happening as a result of them. The one, the one that would be catastrophic, Greg, would be a solar flare. If it happened to be aimed right at you and, and, and uh, managed to impact the orbiter, that could be a real hazard. But we, we tracked our radiation exposure and each of us, when we went to space, had our own dosimeter that we were to keep in our pocket, the, one of our pockets. Uh, the entire time we were in orbit to measure exactly how much radiation we got. And when you got to a certain limit, I think we only ever had one astronaut that actually got to the limit and they told him, well, I'm sorry, unfortunately, you can't fly anymore. Oh, you can't wow. go to space anymore. So we did track our radiation. The orbiter itself had a, had a radiation counter in it that it would track, but the one that was more specific was the one that was precisely where you were. And, and there were some funny things that would happen. Um, you'd, be, you'd be in your sleeping bag, starting to go to sleep. You'd have your eyes closed and all of a sudden you'd see a flash in your eyes. And it was one of these high energy particles that happened to hit the retina of your eyes and flashed a great bright light in your eyes with your eyes closed. Wow. And I remember on my second mission one time, uh, it happened. And one of the other astronauts from down in the mid deck said, holy smokes, did you all see that? Because we were all we were all going to sleep at the same time. And so it would have been something kind of energetic. So mm -hmm. yeah, you did see you did see some evidence of the radiation uh, physically in your eyeballs. And then, like I say, we tracked it all. Well, Let's see, just about time to come back and land. And uh, this was what a space shuttle looked like during re-entry. We flew 40 degrees angle of attack, 40 degrees nose high. And you notice the space shuttle is not a very sleek airplane. It doesn't look like the A-12 or the SR-71 Blackbird, which are really sleek airplanes. Well, the reason is we wanted a very blunt object and we're gonna present this very blunt bottom side to the airstream because we come in at Mach 25, 25 times the speed of sound. And you can see in this wind tunnel picture how it creates this enormous powerful shockwave. Well, we want an enormous powerful shockwave because a powerful shockwave is a very thick shockwave and therefore it's farther away from the surface of the orbiter. So the temperature in that shock wave would be 9,000 degrees, but we would only see 3,000 degrees. The nose cap and the wing leading edges only saw 3,000 degrees. Well, that would melt most metals known to humankind. And uh, the tiles would see 2,400 degrees and they were capable of 2,400 degrees. But that's why the space shuttle was so blunt 
was that we want to create that very big, thick shockwave. And this is what it looks like from inside. It looks like you're flying into a blowtorch. Hmm. Uh, because again, it's 9,000 degrees in that shock wave, and it actually converts the air into a plasma. And it's a glowing red hot, white hot plasma that lasts for 15 minutes during reentry. Wow. And I'll never forget on my first reentry when we came out of the out of the fire, when we had slowed all the way down to Mach 10. 10 times the speed of sound is about where the, the fire went away. Thinking to myself, I can't believe anything man-made can fly through something like this and survive, but obviously it could. So it was pretty impressive during re-entry. And then of course, we're a glider. The landing gear, we hold the landing gear until we're 300 feet above the ground because we glide like a smooth brick with the gear up <laughs> and we glide like a bumpy brick with the gear down. So we hold the landing gear until 300 feet. And the gear isn't hydraulically pushed down. Hydraulics only undoes the uplocks and the gear free falls. Really? From, <laughs> from gravity and also from air loads uh, puts the gear back down. And, and I got asked one time, what are you going to do if one of your gear doesn't come down? And I said, we've decided ahead of time we're going to land anyway yeah <laughs> yeah because of course we're a glider so yeah <laughs> so no choice other than that and uh i meant probably mentioned earlier we touched down at about 235 miles an hour and starting in 1992 we finally got a drag chute and that was a wonderful thing to add because that really helps us go easy on those tiny little wheels and brakes that we have on the main gear and then Let's see, I guess the final slide I was going to show, I guess, is, uh, you know, if you've done everything right and you've survived the mission. And that was part of the briefing I would give to my crews as mission commander. The first time we all got named and we would sit down together, I would say to them, we are going to live or die, depending on how we carry out this mission, because mission control really doesn't have any control. All of the control is on board, just like when all of us fly. It's all on board. FAA can't control that airplane for us. We have to do it ourselves. Every switch that gets thrown gets thrown by the crew. And so training, the importance of training. So, and then you get to pose for cool hero photos like this one. <laughs> so those were, those were the slides I was going to show us. And... Uh, I guess I'll go to stop share if, if it's okay. Go for it. Well, there is actually one more slide that you've been showing us the whole time you've been talking with us in both shows. And that's the slide that is in your ready room. You have a bunch of aircraft hanging from your ceiling. Those are not plastic glued models. Those are actual aircraft that can actually fly, radio controlled aircraft. And yes. you know, to say that you're a big promoter of radio controlled aircraft would be a bit of an understatement. You've been doing this for decades. Yes, sir. Yes, I have, Todd. Yeah, that, and, and, I, and I'm fascinated by it, especially by the jets. And uh, I actually have more models than, than what are hanging up here. And I, I, the reason I have so many models is because they have accumulated. Um, I don't <laughs> crash them very often. I do crash them now and then, but I don't crash them very often. And so they just keep accumulating. And, uh, but they are, oh golly, they're a lot of fun. 
a person can learn a lot about aerodynamics and about aviation by flying models. Yeah. Uh, you learn about weight and center of gravity. You learn about stability and control. And there are a lot of great things that we can learn about flying by, by flying models. And Cooter, so you're, I, you're still affiliated with AMA, the Academy of Model Aeronautics. And, and that was, uh, that was you know, a, a big bump for them to have you as uh, I know for a while, long time, you were a spokesperson for them or you were the face of, of AMA. Yes, and they were calling me an ambassador for model aviation. Yeah. And uh, I've, I've been doing it uh, since, since I was a kid. I remember yeah, I, when I was eight years old, um, I decided I wanted a model of the X1 and there weren't any. So I drew myself a plan and I bought some balsa wood and I made a, it wasn't a real pretty one, but it resembled an X1. Uh, I remember building that when I was eight years old. And so been been doing flying models, you control, control line, free flight, until I graduated from college and I could finally afford radios. Now nowadays, radios are are relatively inexpensive. They are compared to when I was growing up. Yeah, that was <laughs> you had to work two jobs to afford one of those radios. So. <laughs> well, you have competition now that you didn't have even 10 years ago. You can go to Best Buy, Amazon, Target even, off the shelf by yourself. I'll just say the name DJI because they have like a hammerlock on the <laughs> consumer market and go out and fly a relatively sophisticated aircraft that could link up with multiple satellite constellations for navigation. That's putting, that's a competition for traditional radio controlled aircraft. Uh, are you pro, anti, or have you thrown in the towel given the cost and the ease with which one can do uh, a modern drone? Well, there, there's room for all of us. Yeah. There's room for all of us is the way I feel about it. And I, I, don't, I don't really do the drones, but uh, like I say, uh, done safely and, and done with, with the right attitude to where I am going to make darn sure I'm not near an airport and I'm not going to get in somebody's way. I'm not going to fly over people. Uh, it can be done safely. And the AMA has been very good, Academy of Model Aeronautics has been very good about emphasizing safety and emphasizing how, how not to get yourself in trouble and how to not jeopardize uh, full-size aircraft while we're flying models. And they have, they have an admirable safety record. Uh, we need to make sure that gets applied to drones. Hey, who does we wrap this up? And again, we appreciate all the time you've given us. Um, I have to ask you this question because again, it was uh, something that was spotlighted in the recent past, especially um, as it was reported amongst military pilots and that is UFOs. And the fact that there was a lot of release supposedly of these supposed classified videos of these unidentified flying objects that were being reported by military pilots as well as even commercial pilots. And it, it, it goes through these ups and downs where it becomes a real big news story and then it dies off. And then all of a sudden you get a cluster of them in it and it comes back as a big news story. In any of your experience, especially, you know, in space, were there, was there anything you ever saw that couldn't be explained? No, there wasn't, Greg. And it's, and it's a good question. And, and you know, the, 
the, the problem that we have with UFOs, and they're calling them something else now, uh, uh, unexplained aerial yeah, uh, phenomenon, yeah. something like that. You know, it's interesting. The ones that have come up recently are not things that people have physically seen. They're things that showed up on their sensors, that showed up by virtue of a sensor. And of course, there's, there's a subset of the population out there that wants to make these aliens. They want to make these alien craft. Well, somebody asked me um, about a year ago, if I could fly at a million miles an hour, couldn't I go to Proxima Centauri, the closest star to us other than our sun? Well, Proxima Centauri is 4.1 light years away. Well, if I could fly at a million miles an hour, um, wouldn't that be fast enough to get there? And so I, I sat down and I calculated 186,000 miles a second, et cetera. Um, could I go to Proxima Centauri? And the answer is yes, you could go there. It would take you 2,742 years to get there at a million miles an hour. <laughs> yeah, you're going to be real old when you get there. <laughs> we, we, we can't fly at a million miles an hour. We never have. Yeah. Um, so where are these aliens coming from? We've studied every planet in our solar system and every planet. So where are they coming from? I can't see where they could be coming from. Yeah. Uh, now that doesn't explain the unexplained aerial phenomenon, but but I but what I maintain is it rules out that it's aliens coming from a true astronaut. I love it. Well. Uh, I want to just leave you with one last question because you are an avid general aviation pilot. Again, you know, with all of your, your experience uh, as a naval aviator and of course as an astronaut, what's translated into the cockpit of your Bonanza? I know that you, you uh, emphasize training, but what kind of operational discipline as a general aviation pilot do you believe that we need to see more of and as a flight instructor, I, as an instructor, need to be training a student um, so that you know we can minimize or mitigate that risk to as close to zero as possible. Probably the one simplest thing to say is adherence to the checklist, adherence to the limitations of that aircraft. And I have I have an expression that that I that I use, and that is that airplanes have limitations for a reason, and it isn't just to spoil your fun. <laughs> so adherence to the pilot's operating handbook and adherence to the checklist and don't think, well, I can just get away with it this time. Don't be flying if you're saying to yourself, oh, there's something I, I don't really like this, but I'll bet I can get away with it. I've only got to climb up through this solid fog for a couple of hundred feet and I'll be okay. Don't approach a flight with an attitude like that. Awesome. Well, again, Hoot, I know on behalf of myself and, and John and Todd, we really appreciate you taking uh, the time out of the day. I know you've got to go. We've kept you a heck of a lot longer than we thought we were going to keep you. So again, thank you very much. I look forward to seeing you in our next adventure. But uh, um, Todd, John, I'll let, you, uh, I'll let you have the last words with Hoot as we close out the show. All right. Well, I'd like to first thank uh, you for being here and giving the opportunity for our audience. Uh, I hate to say this because it makes us sound old, many of whom were not even born when you were flying, but the lessons that you're giving us will outlive us all. And we thank you again for being here. Thank you, sir. Thank you, sir. All right, who? 
Todd saw the picture you gave me from space of the area here in New England, Cape Cod, where I live in Boston. And when I told him you took it, he doubted that. <laughs> so we need to settle the score. Did you actually take that picture or is it just- Now, before you answer that, a hundred bucks says you did. <laughs> I did take that picture, yes. Yeah, that was on, that was on my final mission, STS-71, the docking with the Russian space station Mir. So that's, that's, that's where that photo came from. You owe me a hundred bucks, Todd. <laughs> <laughs> I got a Monopoly set right here with your, with yeah, your yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, we, hold on, Tom, before you uh, get into the, uh, the close, John, I just want to say to our audience, um, again, you can always get a hold of us at Flight Safety Detectives through our Gmail. You can contact me, John, and Todd at Flight Safety Detectives with an S at gmail.com. We always appreciate the feedback. We hope uh, to hear from you about this show. I think that the, the two shows uh, with Hoot on board were probably two of our best. Um, I love this guy because he's just got so much great insight and, of course, his stories. So we want to hear from you. Um, we're hoping that uh, we can dig up. We won't dig up any more astronauts because they aren't as good as Hoot. <laughs> but but uh, we'll, we'll, we like to have uh, somebody on the show that, brings a different perspective. And, and the good thing about you, Hoot, is the fact that you are a general aviation pilot. So, um, you know, you've taken that experience from being that rocket scientist type astronaut dude to actually putting it into the cockpit of a Bonanza. So again, we, we appreciate that. So please, if, uh, if you have any comments, good, bad, or indifferent, reach out to us uh, either through the website or our, our uh, Gmail at flightsafetydetectives at gmail.com. So with that, John, I will leave it to you to close out this show. And as always, I will thank our sponsors, PAMA, the Professional Aviation Maintenance Association, PAMA.org, and Avemco Insurance. If you need insurance, liability insurance, health coverage, whatever kind of insurance you may need for a general aviation airplane, give Avemco a call, 888-879. 0389 or avemco.com. Great people to deal with. And if you're going to go flying, three step. Before you even get to the airport, do initial planning. When you get to the airport, do a very thorough pre planning session, including what happens if I have an engine failure on takeoff? Where am I going to put this airplane? And don't tell me you're going to turn around and come back and land because that's not gonna happen. Right? And then as you get out to your airplane, do a meaningful walk around. Right? And that includes a good checklist inside the airplane before you turn the engine on. Right? And then above all else, fly safely. Thanks for listening. To listen to more episodes of this show, go to FlightSafetyDetectives.com or your favorite place to listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening, and remember to fly safe.